Welcome to The Color Code. My name is Colin Kelly, and my guest today makes me feel just a little self-conscious to refer to myself as a colorist. Jill Bogdanowitz is one of the best colorists on the planet, with credits including Joker, John Wick, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Black Adam, Ant-Man, Spider-Man, The Umbrella Academy, and about 500 other of my favorite films and shows. We had such a cool conversation that spanned from the early days of Digital Intermediate all the way to her current role as co-head of features at Company 3. Can't wait to share this conversation with you guys. It's been one of my favorites so far here on the show. Before we dive in, this episode is brought to you by Calman, a portrait displays brand. I rely on Calman products every day for my needs as a professional colorist, so I'm really, really excited to have them supporting this show and these conversations with the world's best motion imaging creatives. Without further ado, let's dive in to my discussion with Jill Bogdanowitz. I'm so glad you're here. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I, I'm I'm so glad you could make it uh, amid your crazy schedule. I feel like you're always grading like <laughs> five movies simultaneously. <laughs> I know. It does happen that way often where I'll have movies all in different stages, right? Some are shooting, some are finishing, some are in the middle, and I do TV as well and commercials. So it's kind of balancing all of those things. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot, a lot going on. Well, this is so funny because, you know, we've known each other for years, but we've never actually gotten to sit together in person. I know. This is the first time we've actually met in person, which yeah. is crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so cool to get to do. And I feel like maybe as part of that, I, of course, know your resume. I'm not even going to list the highlights because it's just too stacked. Everyone can go mm -hmm. IMDB you. Um, <laughs> but I know your credits. I know a little bit of your story because I have known you for a while. But I'd love to get a sense of like from the beginning, like how did you get into color grading? How have you charted this? crazy career you've had. I know. I was, well, I really attributed a lot to kind of being the right place, right time, but also I have worked my butt off. Like it's been ridiculous amount of hours, but how, how I really got started is I was an intern at Kodak in Rochester, New York in the R and D department for Telecine while I was going to college, I was going to college for an art major and a physics minor. And so I was working in the R and D division to try to, you know, learn a little bit more about the Telecine, which was a really beautiful mix between art and science. Right. Yeah. So, um, I didn't really know it would be my career. I didn't, actually know there was a career that really went with that more than what I saw at Kodak in R&D. Um, but I asked a lot of questions always, and it was always learning all different equipment. I had uh, the opportunity to work with one colorist there who was very technical. His name was Kyle Elvett. He was my basically my mentor. And um, so I got to see how he ran. We had a spirit scanner telecine that was connected to DaVinci 888. And we had an old rank um, telecine connected to a Pogol. Um, I ran the Avid there. Um, I created an access database for their entire library of you know video and film archives archives that they had. So I got to really learn a lot of different things and, and ask a lot of questions. And I was also the fly in the wall with a lot in, in most of these big meetings about film stocks, how, what kind of film stock would be, um, released next? What did they need? Uh, I did a lot of comparison on film stocks, technical comparison. So I had a lot of that just experience. And then, um, I went, to school in Italy for a little bit and studied my art and architecture there. And then when I finished college, I got uh, basically a job offer to come out to uh, LA and work on this little project they were getting going that they needed my, my help on to be the assistant. So it happened to be, Oh brother, where art thou? 
And um, they needed somebody who knew all of the background. So I was doing Perl scripting at the time. So I could actually run all the Unix computers. I could also run all of the, like the telecine stuff. And I knew all the tape decks. I knew how to route. I knew all that. So they needed somebody to, to run that as an assist. So I came on out to LA from New York and um, started doing that and had no idea it would become my career. Um, at that time, DI was looked at as a boutique fad type of thing that wasn't going to stick around. Uh, a lot of people were, were very wary of it simply because not everybody knew how to do it or do it well. So you could go to one company and have one experience and go to another company and have another experience because it was really complicated to get something off of a CRT monitor that you're coloring because that's what we were doing for Oh yeah. Brother <laughs> um, off of a CRT monitor back out to film, right. right? So we were at first using ICC profiles on a um, monitor. And then what we would do is film it out and it wasn't coming out right. right. Why wasn't it not working, right? And so <clears throat> there's all of that kind of figuring out and discovery of what actually needed to happen. How are we going to solve it? So who did I call? Mm -hmm. uh, my dad, <laughs> who happens to be a brilliant color scientist. I know you know. <laughs> yep. um, and he was like, wait a minute. Hmm, uh, here, here, read these patches and get them back to me. And so I started, you know, he was in New York at the time. Uh, Cinesite was a subsidiary of Kodak, so we could all work together. And basically, I would send him all of these different patches. He'd send them back. I'd run tests, film stuff out. Long story short, we just designed some lookup tables that would actually, we could color through so that it would actually come out correct on film. Because actually, the one color that was really, really difficult, well, there's several colors, but one color that's specifically difficult to replicate back out on film is that muted gold color, which is what they were using a lot, turning the green of the trees to that muted gold yeah. color, like swinging the hue um, and saturation. That was really a tricky color to balance. So we, we were trying to use ICC profiles. This wasn't quite working. Traditionally, that's what a lot of visual effects artists would do at the time is just use an ICC profile, but they were limited more to what you would do in a film lab because it was ending up back in the film lab. So the rule was not to do anything to the digital file that you couldn't replicate in the lab because it was supposed to fit back in with the rest of the movie, right? So that wasn't a really, really uh, fine-tuned type of situation. But now when you're going ahead and you're pushing images outside of you know brighter, darker RGB, and then while, now all of a sudden you're starting to see where it would fall apart. So that's where I called my dad um, and, and I said, you know, why isn't this working? And we worked together to be able to try to figure out how to create a lookup table for a projector that would, well, first we were on a CRT and then he did get a projector towards the end of the project. But to be able to get the projector to at least perform in a way that would be more, you know, um, consistent on film. Yeah. And to be able to track the the all of the different, you know, when we get the negative back, track the negative, look at the prints, be able to have some sort of control. So we knew, okay, well, the lab this day was like half point red or the lab today is a quarter point magenta. All those things were much more um, sensitive than what it would be off of a original negative. Because now we're creating another negative that almost in a way is a little bit thinner or didn't have as much fidelity because now you're limiting, you're increasing contrast or you're limiting color depth and, and all those things because of the color you're putting into it. So now all of a sudden 
you, it acts differently. It's like touchier. It's touchier. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's delicate. So th- my dad basically helped create that workflow lookup table and we actually ended up getting the movie done, but it was a learning process, you know? So that's, that was very early on process. Then slowly, of course, got more and more, you know, refined and people started using DI more for partial DIs. So <clears throat> to do flashback look or to do, uh, to smooth out a scene. I remember I did a partial DI for Last Samurai and they shot a whole battle scene in a forest in the fog over several days. And it needed to be, they had all different weather situations. They had sun, they had clouds, and they basically needed to be able to smooth it out, right? So that it all felt like the same day. And in the film lab, it was really proving difficult because you can't control contrast through fog, right? In the lab. So um, I was able to sit, I worked with John Toll and we went through and smoothed out that whole sequence. And we did a couple other sequences too, but really it was used for, for more specific purposes. And, um, you know, there were a lot of debates at the time about, you know, is DI good or bad? Because cinematographers, I think, felt also now there was another layer of control that, that they either had or did not have. Right. And studios were new to it and didn't understand the technology as much at the time. And it was just a lot of unknown and it wasn't consistent from one company to another. So there was a lot of misinformation out there. There are a lot of people with different experiences. So it's come a long way since then. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I actually was, I'd never heard of that idea of a partial DI before. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're it, a movie that's otherwise being timed. You're mm-hmm. just dropping in and saying like, okay, this forest with like exteriors that need to be massaged together. You're just dropping in and doing the DI for that portion. And it has to seamlessly drop into a photochemically timed exactly movie. Exactly. Wow. So if we did control contrast or saturation or do something like that, we, we had to make sure it was for the entire sequence. Right. There were also times where we do opticals or do special things that um, did have to go back into the actual timed negative. So I would be limited to using basically printer points. Right. So mm-hmm. I would time only with printer points. Be very careful with that and not mess with anything else. Yeah. So that, so it would actually cut in. Yeah. You know. So I did that as well. I did a lot of trailers back in the day where where we'd have to do things like that as well. You know, so, or visual effects. And sometimes we would also, since I was Cinecite, a visual effects company, sometimes we would do certain things in color to help uh, the visual felt, the visual effects along. And then that way, when it would drop back in, it was kind of like had the color helping it and also the visual effect. So there was a lot of different ways you could use it. And yeah. um, I mean, now it's just everybody does the full movie, right? The other thing that was interesting that was a new idea uh, is something that I had to pitch to a lot of people early on was doing the 709 version of your movie, right? Because back in the day used to photochemically people used to scan the IP. So you would go through your photochemical process and you you release the movie out into the world and then you'd have to start over for your 709. So you'd have another usually a different colorist because there was a lab timer that would do the lab timing. Now you'd have a different telecine colorist running off of your IP and you'd have to go through and do your 709 version, which usually ended up looking different than the photochemical. Most of the time time. they were big time different, right? 
you have two different people. Was a director there? Was a cinematographer there? You don't, you know, there's a lot of different tool sets, completely different tool sets, completely different. Exactly. So early on a DI, another huge revelation was that, wait a minute, we don't have to recolor this. Mm. We can take these digital files and we can just do a translation from whatever color space we're working in, say like P3 to 709. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there are, there's math for that, yeah. <laughs> right? Like I don't have to estimate it. So, so that was a huge thing. I had to really prove that even to the people I was working with at the time to like, Hey, you know, this can work. And well, who built that first lookup table for me was my dad because he was working right down the hall. And that was one of the, one of the first movies I colored solo was hearts war. And, um, I ran, I ran it two different ways. Um, I ran it so that I actually rendered the whole movie through a lookup table that my dad had made me through Cineon mm -hmm. because at the time there were no live lookup table boxes or anything like that. So I'd ran it through Cineon, the entire movie. And then I ran and like tried to do it by eye in a separate mm -hmm. way. By eye was just, so, it's almost impossible. You've, if you've yeah. ever tried coloring, to go from one color space to another, it's almost impossible to get yeah. it to look exactly the same. And it's a lot of work. And so I started doing it both ways. The lookup table worked so brilliantly. It looked so beautiful, past all the QC and all the things. Yeah. And um, so that was the first proof of concept where we started doing that. And um, that now is the way you do it. Like people don't even think of recoloring it. You know, we do tweaks for different things, right? Right. Like for HDR passes. Or for like Adobe EDR, I do passes for that. Or 3D, um, HDR, and then 709. There's you know 709 standalone, 709 through Adobe, whatever. There's all these different things that take little tweaks, but we're not recolor. Yeah, you're trimming, trimming one master. Right. So yeah. basically, make each um, color space shine. Make it all work the best way. This is so fascinating to me. I mean, in a number of ways, but one of the things that really stands out about what you're describing is because of your entry point and your experience earlier in your career, you really were kind of putting yourself into an ideal position for what I see you doing now, which is like, you're, you're really a leader in helping shape. What does it mean to master a cinematic image? in 2023 when like the guardrails are off of like, you must print it. So you're going to get like the goldier yellows or whatever, like you can do whatever you want, yeah. but then you need taste. And like, you've like, you're now in a, in a playing a role where like you can help guide and shape that taste with your clients. But it feels like so much of like your intuitive, but also like technical connection to which of those things are desirable comes from that, early experience. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Well, thank you. First of all, but yes, absolutely. And it comes from just the experience that basically being in the middle of a film world, knowing exactly what's going to happen, going, what does it look like on a monitor? What does it look like on a projector? What does it look like on film? Knowing the film characteristics really well, having that experience of actually technically knowing how they build film stocks, knowing the S curve, knowing what colors are more difficult to replicate on film versus on digital, like cyans and different types of reds, how difficult they are. Keeping that all in the back of my mind as I'm coloring, right? And so when I'm creating a look now that is supposed to be reminiscent of film, right? Not only do I have 
lookup tables and my father's made me a few of those as well. Mm -hmm. Not only do I have lookup tables, but I also know what to do with them. I know how not to break them because a lookup table is a lot of people will come to me and say, oh, well, that lookup table will create the look and it gets you partially away there. Yeah. Right. But you got to know how to, to use it. You know, you have to know how to color underneath a film lookup table. It's much different than how to color under a linear or something that's not filmic and um, knowing what to do to be able to make it still keep that filmic quality, how not to break it, you know? And that it comes from years of experience of being absorbed in that and just seeing so many film images and intricately studying them and having just that feel when I can tell if it's something doesn't feel filmic mm -hmm. and I can usually tell how to fix it. You know, uh, it's different for every image, but I definitely have that somewhat ingrained because of all that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that leads me to one of the, Many things I want to ask you about. You have two days straight to uh, to chat, right? I <laughs> I've got my smoothie. Plans. I'm good. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. So, like, it, this all makes me think about like what your with all of your knowledge and your background, and with all the freedom that we have with like modern digital color grading. Like, what is a look dev process for you? Because I know it's not like eh, grab a lot off the shelf and let's start spinning knobs. Like what does it look like for you? Yeah. It's different for every show, right? So I always start talking to director, a cinematographer, you know, whoever's contacting me about it. Usually it's a cinematographer. Um, and so we'll sit down and we'll talk like, okay, this needs to feel really filmic. Um, for example, like Joker, right, is one. Um, so Larry came to me, he's like, it needs to feel very filmic of the late 70s, early 80s. What stock, let's, let's look at what stocks were really popular then and let's make sure that it has these qualities. What qualities did film stocks then have? You know, let's like amplify that a little bit. But then, you know, make sure that it continues to hold the color separation that we like, you know, so we don't want to yeah. limit that. So kind of finding what needs to be there to help tell a story, to help support the cinematography, to help support the wardrobe, right? And, you know, for Joker, again, an example, the red, the red suit, we want to make sure that that color separation, the reds and the cyans and the greens are all, you know, articulate and not, not muddy in any way, but still don't feel garish or oversaturated or anything. So knowing that we have to find this balance is, is a little bit of, it's a lot of times people ask me how I build lots. Yes. I have a certain library that I kind of start with is pieces of the puzzle, but then I just really go by feel. Like I build it by feel a lot of times where I amend it like, okay, this is consistently feeling, I don't know, like I want to pull out more color separation and this particular color. So then I'll do that and build that into the lot and then watch how that performs. And then on several different types of scenes. And, and I always test it on all different types of things, right? So I usually make one lookup table per show. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions, but in general, I do that. And then, so that one lookup table has to be technically sound. It has to hold up in all situations and it has to not break anything, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which we all know. It, well, and maybe you don't know, but you know, as you're working with lookup tables, right? Like some people may not know that, a lookup table can look okay on one shot. You try to put it on another shot with a very specific color that you've never really tested before and it can create artifacts. Or if you have visual effects, those guys need super clean lookup tables because you don't want in any way 
make their job more difficult yeah. <laughs> or break their visual effects in any way or show any lines or edges or have a, add any artifacts. So one of the things when people ask me about lookup tables, I always say is it has to go through. I have an image science team at, at Company 3 who is super strong, always goes through and vets that all the lookup tables that I make to make sure that they are strong, that I'm not breaking anything. Um, cause sometimes I make some crazy lookup tables and I can break things and they're like, yeah, we got to fix this. Yeah. I'm like, okay, fine. We can fix this. But you know, um, it's not just only by eye and it's, it's really vetted quite heavily, um, when we do these things. So when I first start working on a movie, I'll come up with a couple different looks, usually give a handful to the cinematographer to test through hair and makeup or something like that tests that they do. And then they give it back to me like, you know, we really like this, but whatever, like let's tweak this or tweak that. And then I'll just amend it and give it back to them. We kind of keep doing that until we settle on one. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And, you know, again, I feel like because of your experience, you're able to do like what you just talked about with the thought that you bring into look dev and LUT design. That's something a lot of us haven't had the chance to like learn of like, well, what else, how, how else do I know if it's working or not? Other than if I look at it on 10 images and it looks good, it must be good. Like having that more systematic, like technical aspect of your process to kick the tires and make sure it's going to work on set and stuff. That's a unique thing that I imagine it took you some years to like, yeah, to cultivate. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm lucky enough to work at company three who has that system in place and they've always done that with yeah. any of the colors. You make a lookup table. They want to make sure that we're not giving to clients anything that would cause problems later on mm -hmm. because that's usually where you find it. And the 11th hour when you really don't need a problem, and then that's when you need to fix it. Yeah. So that's why we try to get everything, get ahead of everything, you know, and that's what they're really good about doing. And a good color scientist can probably like in the, you know, like hypothetical you just described of like, I really like what this is doing, but it's like tearing, you know, like a saturated cyan or something. A good color scientist can usually go in there and help you sort of gently massage that region without necessarily changing the body of the the look exactly right? and i did learn that from my dad too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I'm armed with a little bit of that knowledge uh, absolutely so yeah so yeah. i can push a look and make it a little crazy and i know that somebody else will help clean up the mess i made <laughs> yeah. a lot. but um yes so so that is a really good piece of knowledge to have as you're yeah. building yeah that's really cool and then so obviously like you know you're you're in ideal situations you're getting to send out a show lot that you've been able to iterate on with the creatives and they're able to capture images in that context. And then uh, your grade starts in a stronger place when you're able to do that, of course. Mm -hmm. um, when you get into your grading process, like let's go through a, an idealized situation uh, like that. What, what, how does the grade change when that's the backdrop of like, we've already been looking through this viewing transform for months and we know what it feels like. What happens in that grade versus like, you've got to kind of start from zero on the first day of the DI. Got it. Well, I'll also go back one step too, because when I create a lookup table, I also usually help create or do create the CDLs. Um, so I'll give a base CDL to start with. And I'm very close with DIT. I work closely with the DIT and I work closely with, if there is a dailies colorist, all three of us are very, very close for, for the first few weeks. And I really make sure it stays on track and gets going. So everything that I get back in the DI, because the CDLs, as we know, travel along with the files and I have my lookup table. So when I start the DI on something, a project like that, it's already pretty darn close to where we want it to look 
what we want it to look like. And then at that point, we can basically make sure everything flows. We can make sure everything matches. We can also spend more time on details, shaping the images a little bit more, um, bringing your eye, bring your eye to where you want the audience to look. Um, maybe even trying to enhance the whole look just a little bit more. You don't have to be as safe with it because now you've got a bigger screen and maybe it feels different on a bigger screen and you just work on details, right? If I'm starting from scratch and I haven't been involved from the beginning on a project, which still happens too, then at the end, <clears throat> at the end of the process, it's a little bit more of finding a look, right? It's a little bit more of exploration. It's a little bit more of now finding the best way to help tell a story, to be able to make everything smooth and, and to be able to get the vibe that we want for that show. And that takes a lot of collaboration, making sure the director's on board, making sure the editors are cool with that, making whoever's involved in the process, of course, the cinematographer, the producers come in and all look at it. So it becomes a little bit more of a discovery, a little bit more of a uh, conversation in the DI at the end. Whereas if I'm setting the look from the very beginning, it's a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Mm -hmm. So now the producers, the director, everybody, nobody really has to talk about it. They all know what it mm -hmm. looks like, you know? And then they understand that when you get to the DI, it's a little bit more just making sure the visual effects flow and doing all the details and making it better, right? Yeah. So it's a great communication tool. It's a great way to work that way. And over my years of doing this, I found that that's the most efficient way. So sometimes when people bring me in the, in the beginning, maybe I don't do as much or whatever, but create, even just creating lookup table and supervising a little bit of the CDL stuff in the, in the, in the beginning helps so much towards the end. I do it for TV shows too, like umbrella Academy. I do that every season and whatever, a couple others too, but you know, it, it really helps on so many levels. And in those situations, are you actually like, how granular do you get with dailies, colorists and DITs? Are you actually talking with them about like, here's the tool set that I think is going to be optimal for this show. Do you guys get oh, that yeah. far into detail? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on the show and a DIT and the dailies person, but usually I've got some dailies people that I work with that are really awesome that mm -hmm. I work with often DITs as well. I know a lot of DITs pretty well because um, well, before COVID, I actually used to go on set and actually start building CDLs with the DIT. Say, okay, well, don't do this under this LUT and try to do it this way. Yeah. And this LUT will be better if we do this or this or this. And don't be scared if it does this because it's supposed to, you know, let yeah. it go that way. And um, just knowing that I've kind of got their back and I can kind of talk them through that it really helps as well, you know? And if there are any questions or like, you know, we're finding in this scene, it feels a little whatever, like, oh yeah, yeah, try this. Or let's, here's a CDL for that or whatever. Then it's just a great communication tool for, and confidence builder for whoever's on set, the DIT or the daily scholar, the same thing. I'll go in and supervise dailies in the middle of the night usually and, and show up and, uh, <laughs> And, and, you know, comment on stuff like, oh, yeah, yeah let's try to do it this way or that way. Or let's keep it, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want to get to whatever, you know, darker, lighter. And um, so I am pretty close with the, that group when, when I'm going through the, from the beginning. I mean, it, it makes so much sense in the context of what you said a minute ago that like grading under a film print LUT or any sort of like opinionated LUT is a skill in and of itself. It's not the same thing as grading under Okay, you just transform. said the opinionated lot. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. It's true because I do tend to make a lot of those. And it's that's the kind of stuff that people may not be used to, right? Grading under. And it, it just coming from me helping 
tied a little bit works really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes such, such good sense. Um, you know, something else that I, uh, have been thinking about when I was, you know, like I've, I've kind of been, I don't, most of, uh, your grades, a lot of them, I don't even have to watch them at this point. I can like play them back in my head cause I know them so well, but something that like really sticks out to me is, you know, we've already, we've talked so much about the influence of film, uh, you know, aesthetics on, uh, the way that you grade now and the, uh, the projects that you do, but like, I'll, I'll even use Joker as an example. Like, I can't prove this to you, but like when I watch Joker, I'm like, that feels so filmic, like so, so like it hits that target that you talked about uh, going through with Larry. Like, I really want to go for 80s period, but there's things happening in there that you couldn't get out of a film system. Mm-hmm. There's stuff that's beyond. And it's not just like, oh, a power window. I mean, like the palette, like some of the colors are like going beyond gamut boundary of what you could get in a film system. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about yep. that. Like yep. you're living there. Like yeah. you're, you're starting with that film base, but then you're using your taste and you're really pushing. That's right. It's actually very true. So we were able to um, pick certain colors, making sure that we have, as Larry likes to call it, a rounded image or or an image that has a lot of color separation, right? I love that. Yeah. Rounded image. Rounded image. Yeah, that's his term. And But I know what he means by it. It's just, you know, it's something that really feels rich and really has nice color separation, has nice tonality. Okay. So, um, if, if you're looking at an image and you don't, for me anyway, I don't feel all the different colors like on a skin tone, right? Mm -hmm. Skin tones have a lot of colors, you know, in all different types of skin tones have so many colors. And if I ever at any point feel it's kind of lacking that, then I know that I need to do something to, to change that, right? To, to increase that color separation. I'm very sensitive to that. And so is Larry, actually. It's one of the things that I've really learned from him over the years. I mean, we've worked together for many years and that's something we're both very sensitive to. So I'm like, now that's the word for it is, is color separation and a rounded image. Yeah. But in Joker, one of the things that we did do is really make sure we had a rounded image at all times. Feel the skin tones, feel the definition of color, without being cluttered, without having too many colors. So there's certain times I would take away um, a little bit of color and increase the separ- the color separation, or it's not straight saturation, but it basically be like letting the red channel come through a little bit more to be able to um, keep a really rounded image, but still being filmic. And without getting neon either, because it's not just, again, just not just saturation. It's actually increasing your, almost increasing your range in a way. Saturation does that, but it's more complicated, I think. Yeah, there's a volumetric aspect there. More like, exactly. So that's probably your feeling is like traditional film doesn't have those almost the, the volumetric expansion of color always. It can through like a Technicolor three strip type process, right? right? So, um, and I've been funny enough working on stuff with that lately too, okay. which is very cool. Um, actually, John Wick kind of hits upon a little bit of that as well. If, mm. if you watch John Wick 4, which just came out, that's got a lot of very filmic qualities to it, but it's got qualities that are continue to have this color separation, which is really amplified without going too saturated as well. I mean, John Wick is a, a great example among like the long recent list. I feel like of a lot of the Marvel work you've been doing, like, you know, John Wick, uh, Umbrella Academy as well. Like all these are shows and films that like have a filmic feeling to them, but it's the same, like I, the, the, like 
silly example would be I try to reimagine like, okay, take Jill's grade mm-hmm. and strip off the OT, whatever, you know, like look lot is getting it out to display and put like even a really solid like 2383 emulation or something on there. It, like it wouldn't have nearly what what your system has of like, there's just so much more that's being allowed to shine through there that you're imparting than like normal film would yeah. do. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't got, know either. You honestly. Got moves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess. I mean, that's, that's, I think just kind of my, my aesthetic, like my, I guess my style, um, that I tend to, I've been really lucky enough to be able to impart that upon a lot of my projects. People seem to like it. So it's yeah. working. Um, but that's just my own style. Like I really enjoy that rich color separation. I mean, I've done desaturated stuff too, but I always say when you take something away from an image, you have to add something else, right? It's like a balance. It's like a teeter totter. Mm -hmm. So you take away saturation, you have to add something contrast or density or, or shaping something else that is going to make that image feel like it has weight Mm -hmm. anyway. Um, so I think when I'm coloring all these different projects, you know, it's, it's definitely, I always kind of bring that, you know, I want it to, a lot of times filmic works, not always does it, but a lot of times filmic really works, which is that basic, the S curve and the little bit more contrast in the mids and color separation and all that kind of thing. But I do find times to play and like to be able to make certain things shine, which helps tell a story, helps draw the audience to where we want them to see what would they want them to look at and also create the mood for, for the show, you know? So definitely have a good base to start, but then I just push boundaries when I can. That makes that's yeah, it, it plays out in your work really well. Um, and I feel like, you know, a, another thing that I've just been dying to pick your brain about is on that kind of the same theme of like filmic plus, like whatever we, we want to call this, uh, yeah. this Jill brand. <laughs> if we think like you just said an S curve with like strong midtone contrast and then a, a, a shoulder and a toe, like that's something else that like you see in film, but like, it feels like you've internalized it so much that you are expressing it in like, an even more project specific, like strong way than like a generic S curve. Yeah. So like, I'm curious about that, like just on a kind of on an aesthetic, like feeling basis, like what are you looking for in terms of like that perfect cocktail of really strong mid-tone slope, but like your shadows always have such like, there's nothing that ever crashes in the yeah. shadows. It always feels so gentle and like rounded, I guess, to steal. It's like I know. Well, that's something that I am always very aware of as well. And because um, I really feel that an image is richer when you feel the detail, right? You feel yeah. texture and you feel the detail in maybe even leaving a little color here and there in the black or a little color in the white will make it sometimes feel richer yeah. because it's not super clean, you know? I, I, I don't really usually color super clean unless I, unless it's, I mean it, right. Unless I try to, but my general aesthetic is actually a little dirty in the colors, like color separation, clean, but not necessarily do all the colors like have to be black. Doesn't have to be black. White doesn't have to be white. You know, like, yeah. I've kind of, I remember early in my career, one of the, a colorist, I won't mention his name, but he used to tell me, he's like, you don't follow any of the rules. You're not going to be able to go far in this industry. And I was like, why does there need to be rules? You know, like, but and old- Jill's like, hold my beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was told that a lot of times that I don't follow the rules. I'm not going anywhere. But, it, but, you know, I feel like it's like, 
that used to be the way it was, though. In Telecine Color, you had to balance on your scopes for black. You had to balance on your scopes for white. Yeah. I kind of like never did that. And I mean, I knew about it. I knew how to do it. But I never liked the look of it because it felt boring to me. Yeah. I think, I think here's a good way. Whenever an image feels boring to me, like I won't do it. Yeah. Like I just don't do that anymore. Like I feel like I, I feel like even on things that don't necessarily need a strong look, I still it can't be boring. Like I try some way to make it interesting, you know, to me. Yeah. And I think that to me, that's something that I've developed over the years too. How do I make something a little bit more interesting? Right. Yeah. Anybody can take a photo with their iPhone. You look at the photo; it looks like real life. Yeah, one to one. One to one. Okay. Yeah. It's, that's fine. And there's a place for that in this world. <laughs> yeah. But to me, that's boring, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't like doing that. Well, this leads me to something else I've, I've been dying to pick your brain about. You do a lot of painting. I do. Right? I do. I'm a painter. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like there's a connection there because when <laughs> I look at like my favorite paintings, like exactly what you're talking about is in play. Like it's never boring and it's never like, boy, I really like how they balanced the blacks on their scopes when they painted that. <laughs> right. It just feels good. Exactly. And if you look and you study, this is something I learned in art school and I actually used to do naturally when I was a kid too, like I used to paint, um, is I never use real black in a painting. There's always depth in, in a black. There's depth in a white. If you look at any master painter, okay, um, Rembrandt or Michelangelo, any of these guys, right? You look at what they put into their images. A black is never a flat black. There's blues and there's reds reflected. It's re there's it's got so many different colors in a black that and when you look at a painting that to me it makes it have depth and it makes it more interesting. You could stand 20 feet back and it'll feel black, but you get closer and you see all the detail that's in there, then you understand why it feels like it has so much depth and tonality because it actually has many colors in it. And so I always have felt that like, even when I look at any kind of image, when I was a little kid, I used to say, I don't, I see colors in, in the shadows. I see colors in all the, the whites, right? That type of thing. I used to, even in my drawings, you know, and when I was a five-year-old kid, I had like blues and greens and everything scribbled all in the blacks. Like that's always kind of how I see things. And I do the same things now in my movies and things like black doesn't have to be black and Joker. Black never hits black. There's not a there's not a neutral zero. There's no nothing neutral there. anywhere. No, the whites are warm and the blacks are cyan. And that's very filmic, by the way. And so, but there's nothing that is uh flat color-wise. There's always got depth. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, for me, having the freedom and to be lucky enough to have so many amazing artists and collaborators collaborators that I get to work with that kind of let me do and show them it could be like this, you know, or let's try it like this. By the way, I throw out a lot of ideas that are not good too, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> so that's okay. Like I do, I've kind of figured out, like I still do that too. Like, let's try this. And they're like, yeah, no. All right, cool. We tried it. Or sometimes like, um, on John Wick 4, there is the tag after the credits, which everybody should watch i've already caught a couple of my friends who haven't seen it yet and i'm like oh you should stay <laughs> you shouldn't have left yeah shouldn't have left but anyway that look at the end is something that you know chad's like do something crazy i'm like okay let's do something cool and <clears throat> and i did something real quick he goes that's it happened to use a look up day well that 
I kind of worked a lookup table in that my dad happened to give me that it was I was testing out on something else. I'm like, oh, this might be kind of interesting to throw in the middle of my node tree and mess it up a little. And it came out really, to me, I love it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to use this look for something else. But um, that's kind of thing that I've been lucky enough to have people who allow me to do that kind of stuff and to have that freedom. Very cool. Well, you've, you've, uh, we've just started talking about another aspect of what you do that I'm so excited to hear from you on. It's like, so we've talked about like, you're, you're, uh, an artist and you have your tastes and you have your experience and you've also got a really deep technical background, which helps you make better art. Um, you're also, as we all are, as a colorist, you're a collaborator and it's really a people job as much as it is a, you know, like knob turning, you know, like aesthetic job. So I'm just curious, like, I want the, the Jill cheat sheet. Like, how do you be a great collaborator? Because people <laughs> love funny. working with you, I feel like. Well, I just love, first of all, I just love people and I love having fun with my job. So I think that is part of it. Yeah. But I also say a lot of my job is being a psychologist <laughs> and getting inside of people's heads and finding what they're worried about and trying to solve it, you know, or finding what's been bugging them for a long time about the movie or, or how can I help tell that story that they really want want it to feel a certain way, you know, that kind of stuff. I have to always get in and figure out all of those things, you know, and then, and then I'm able to understand how I'm supposed to navigate the movie or the show or whatever. So somebody's worried about, Oh, you know, uh, I've got heavy visual effects in this scene. I really want to make sure everything flows or whatever. I'll approach it differently than if there are no visual effects or, Maybe, <clears throat> maybe for some reason I have to do uh, a sunrise so it starts darker and gets brighter and I have to move that through the scene like we did on John Wick at the end of John Wick. So that also comes into play. How am I going to do it? How am I going to build this? How much room do I leave myself to like get to from point A to point B? And so just knowing the challenges, knowing the aesthetic of the creative too. So knowing who I'm working with and what do they like? what are their inspiration? What movies do they love? What movies have they emulated in their, you know, in the movie that I'm working on, you know, Oh, this really inspired me watching Lawrence of Arabia, you know, mm -hmm. cool. That gives me a little bit more of an insight as to how I would approach things, you know? So it's always asking questions. It's always understanding where people are coming from. It's always understanding what challenges they've had to deal with throughout the movie when I haven't been involved in the process as much. And um, also it's me protecting them from themselves a little bit on a certain level because I want to make sure that I put an image out that will A, hold up over time, B, hold up in different viewing um, environments. So say we're going to be on a big screen or a small screen or you're maybe in a less ideal theater somewhere. You know, I make sure I always know the rules of how to make sure that it's going to hold up well. Um, also for streaming, how is it going to hold up well on streaming? I know a lot of tricks there. So all the things, just making sure that I'm protecting. So if somebody wants to make something dark, cool. How are we going to make it dark? so that it's going to hold up well in all these different venues. And so that's also comes from experience too, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you fast track that. You just have to learn by doing it. I imagine. It's true. Yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. learn and see and watch and, you know, um, just know what works and roughly what levels and how, to, how I'd approach it, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about. I mean, one of the themes I'm hearing uh, with what you're describing right now is sounds like you're, you're patient and exploratory, especially at the beginning of a collaboration. 
And that seems like it would be especially difficult if you're juggling multiple films or there's a lot of like voices involved or, you know, a lot riding on, you know, like some of the, the like very large budget productions you work on. That seems hard. Yeah, it's not easy. It is not. Again, that's also comes from a lot of experience as well, I think. Um, now, yes, I deal with some pretty high pressure situations and a lot of them on, at the same time sometimes. But um, all I do is you can do it just be in the moment of what you're dealing with one at a time. That's how I do it. Even though I've got 10 billion other people texting me or emailing me or all these things happening. Um, you know, I've got amazing producers that help, you know, allow me to focus on one thing at a time. And I have amazing assistants that also do that and always have my back and second colorists as well that help me with that. So I am really lucky to have this team around me so that I am allowed to be able to focus on exactly what I'm supposed to focus on, on that moment. And then when I leave that moment, somebody tells me where to go yeah. <laughs> and then I move to the next thing. And when I'm doing that kind of thing, um, you know, taking care of myself is super important too. And making sure that I do as much as I possibly can to, uh, not get too tired, which sometimes is impossible, right? Yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't work that way, but always try to stay as strong as I can, eat healthy and sleep as much as I can and drink a lot of water, all the things that like people always tell you to do. It's actually super important when I'm in these highly stressful situations where I've got a lot of people relying on me, honestly. So, you know, to be able to stay calm and focused in those moments, I try to make sure that I take care of myself as much as possible. And again, I've got a great team that does take extremely good care of me when I'm working like that too. You know, they bring me my smoothies and my espresso. I walk in the door and my espresso's right there. You know, they're amazing. So um, that's super important though. Yeah. Is that something that has always been a part of your like professional world? Did you have to work at it? I had to work at that, honestly. Well, Company 3, it's part of the culture that it really is. Um, you know, I have a lot. The Well, Stefan is amazing and he knows that and he's built that culture around taking care of the artists because he knows what it takes. Okay, so, so that's been amazing to be a part of that culture. But it hasn't always been that way at different, you know, throughout the years. And it is something that's learned to, to really make sure that I take care of myself because it's easy to work for a good eight hours and just forget to eat or drink anything because yes. you're so focused. <clears throat> so to be able to actually take time, take a lunch, you know, it doesn't matter. The movie's going to, if we're a half hour later than we deliver, you know, sometimes it actually matters, but yeah. <laughs> you know, really like yeah. we try to, we try to take as much time as we can to take a minute, go sit in the cafe and just relax and see some sun and then go back in, you know, yeah, I mean, that's obviously beneficial to the entire creative process as well sure. as just the nice thing to do for yourself. Exactly. That, yeah. I mean, that's really cool to hear. I know that that's something that I always working on and struggling with. And I'm sure many of us who are listening today, it's like, it, it's almost like the the curse of like finding some footing or some success like you have of like, you know, that you, it, it ends up being something that can kill you if you're not careful. It's so true. It's so true. It's a double-edged sword. So, um, it's really, it's, I can't stress it enough how important it is to be able to, I make time for my family, make time for myself. And that is really, really precious time. Because another thing I always think of is the, is the filmmakers that I'm working with. Those guys, they work on this movie for three years and it's like their whole life, mm -hmm. but then they can have a break. Right. Right. 
I go from one show to the next to the next to the next, and I'm always in this. So I have to find a balance to live that way, within right? That. Within that, yeah. Right? Which I'm very, very lucky to be a part of, and but at the same time, I have to make sure they don't burn myself out. And I think sometimes it is important to take a break as an artist to be able to take a minute and just clear the palette in a way and just be able to do what you love, what inspires you. So you can bring back more inspiration to the next project you're going to work on. Yeah. So how, how do you do that? Whether it's, you know, like formally taking a, a week or a month or whatever, or, you know, just I'm down for the weekend and I've got a chance to spend my time as I elect, like, how do you recharge your batteries? What do you yeah, do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, painting for me, it recharges my batteries on so many levels. It's my own creative outlet. It's for me. It's nobody else is, yeah. is collaborating on it. So it's just that for me. And then um, I ride my horse uh, pretty much every weekend. And that's so grounding and spend time with my kids and my family and just, you know, be like, be a mom, be a normal person and go out and ride my horse. And that kind of stuff is what I love to do in the painting. It's just who I am and making sure I don't lose all the things that I love to do while I'm also giving so much to other people is a, a balance that I still, still struggle with, but it's at least I'm aware yeah. of it now. And, um, I always feel that I am so much stronger in bringing new ideas and being really inspired and keeping my energy up. I'm so much better at doing that when I can recharge with my painting, with my kids, with my horse, and just, you know, have that strength going into the next project. I mean, I'm sure that, and that's what your clients are, as much as your, all, all the things they're getting when they bring Jill into a project, part of what they're looking for is that energy and like that, that you're like, you know, you're healthy and thriving and, and you're fully charged when you go in there. Right. Exactly. They don't want, nobody wants to hire somebody yeah. that's like, oh, fine, uh, here we go. I have another one. No, yeah. like nobody wants that anyway. And that's not what I do. What I do anyway. I, I really am very passionate and very focused at what I'm doing on every project. And I always like to learn from every project, learn from every person I'm working with. I, I learned so much from so many of these directors and cinematographers. I mean, they're really the greatest artists of our time right now. And I love being in that presence and asking them questions and, and being inspired by them too. So I feel the day that I'm not inspired and happy about what I'm doing, I shouldn't be doing it anymore. Yeah. That makes such good sense. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if we, you know, like go back to the craft for a minute, like you've had a career that has spanned such an interesting time because yes. we've gone from like, you know, when you started like DI was at best an unproven thing. And probably like when you were very, very first interning, like yep. it was barely a thing I would imagine. Yeah. It wasn't right? anything. Yeah. It was hardly. And when I was interning at Kodak a few years before I came out here to LA, it, wasn't a job. There was no mm -hmm. DI going out to film. There, really, the first project that did the full movie that way was O'Brother. O'Brother, yeah. Yeah. There was What Dreams May Come, which is a movie that worked, that was happening right as I got to Cinecite, right before O'Brother. And that movie was basically a huge visual effect. All of that movie was a roto, and they didn't do, they did some color balancing and things in the DI, but it wasn't, uh, I don't, I don't remember. It was the most of the movie. I think that went through that because there were so many visual effects of that dream world, mm -hmm. but, um, it wasn't as intricate as Oh brother. 
So it was like right on the cusp of that. But yeah, there really wasn't a job as a DI colorist (laughs) before, really before I came out. And look at where we are. I mean, in this conversation, you've mentioned like, oh, we've got the 3D, there's the EDR. I'm sure like you've done tons of HDR stuff, like all these emerging, you know, like display technologies, all of this massive change in the technology and the tools we use as colorists. Yeah. Where do you see us going? Like, where's this craft going? Anything you're excited about or want to steer away from? I know. Well, no, I'm always excited about new technology. It's it's mm. interesting. Like um, when HDR first started coming out, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I, I don't want to yeah. HDR. And I'm just like, but it's more colors to play with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just a bigger toolbox, really. And you choose what part of that um, range you want to use. You don't have to make everything a thousand nits. You don't. You make everything wherever you feel like it fits, you know? And um, it's just a a larger tool. Like, they're all tools. That's Mm -hmm. it. And then what my job is, is to understand those tools, to learn how to use them, and then implement them the best way for the creatives and, and to educate people as to what it is, right? In terms of their movie, usually. So um, I think, what are we going towards? I see there can be so many things. I don't know, maybe like displays with more colors involved, right? You've got, um, you know, HDR becoming more and more prevalent now in people's homes. So most people have HDR TVs or the new TVs being sold are all HDR. And people don't even really realize that they are sometimes. You know, um, in cinema, are we going to be going for uh, brighter, more nits in the HDR or the EDR, I guess, technically it's extended dynamic range, but instead of, um, 100 nits, I don't know, we could do 300. So I've seen some of that kind of stuff too, which is super exciting and promising. So just continually to make what we have better and expand the color depth, expand the experience for the audience to be able to have the audience connect more with the movie. Any of those tools that can help tell the story, I'm down. And I think there's a lot of things that that are going to be coming out that will help do that. Yeah. Well, and I think that also just speaks to your taste and your maturity as an artist and being able to say like, no, you give me the crayons. I'll figure out how to make something with yep. them. Because not, it's like you said, like just because I have a thousand nits doesn't mean that I want to use it for a project or I should, but that means an artist has to step in and help arbitrate that. I feel like, especially for filmmakers today, like that's a, that's a guide. That's an advisor, the role that you're playing there that like, I'm not sure how much of a precedent there is for that. Filmmakers used to be able to like, all right, pick your print stock, pick your neg, you know, like, do you want to do specialty lab work or not? And the rest of it's in the photography. That's right. And now there's almost too many choices, Uh right? So you need somebody to help guide you through that. And, and I think that is a big role of a colorist now is to be able to understand all the technology and then guide through the creative, what is going to be the best for this movie? What's the best for the movie in this respect? You know, if, how many nits do we want it? Is this supposed to be so like super soft, low contrast movie that's very, very elegant with a lot of tonality? Then maybe we don't go at a thousand nits, you know, you don't need to yeah. stay around 300 yeah, or whatever. but. Yeah, that's it's a huge part, and there you're right. And back in the um, in traditional film days, there wasn't a role that that did that. Yeah, I mean, I've it's it's just it's cool there is now, and it's cool yeah. that you've like gotten to be around to help shape what that is. Like, I'm glad that that I I think the voice that we talked about earlier of like you need to make sure that your shadows are neutral. I'm glad that I don't think that voice has prevailed. 
No, in, in, in what we're doing now. I feel like, you know, like you are really, you're obviously at the top of our industry and you're helping lead just with the images that you grade. Like no one even needs to listen to you speak necessarily to shape the way we think about mastering motion images in like a cinematic mode as opposed to like a finger wagging corrective mode. Well, that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's, that's super exciting for me to hear because it's like the art, right? It's, it's help. It's, I don't know. Art doesn't really have rules, right? I mean, there's certain rules to painting, technical and things, but really how you use it and how you envision it is a very um, creative, imaginative, different way. And that's why I think it's so cool. Each colorist is going to do something a different way, right? We're all artists and we're all going to approach it a different way. You know, even within Company 3, we all do things very differently. I mean, we all talk about it. And um, it's part of, it's a cool part of the community at Company 3. All of us artists talk a lot, but, um, and learn from one another and, and ask, why would you do it that way? And, you know, yeah. that kind of fun stuff. But I think everybody's got their own perspective, you know, and, and that's the, that's the beauty of it. Well, you, you, uh, just teased something that I, I have to press on now. <laughs> so for all my colorist pals out here who are listening and, and, uh, who admire your work so much, I, can you like put me as a fly on the wall in one of those conversations with the artists at company three? Can you give me a secret? <laughs> well, a little secret, I would say, I don't know, like for me, I think in a lot of us too, like to kind of keep it simple. You know, to, I think that's one of the the biggest, I don't know if it's even a secret, but it's something that I'll think a lot of colorists at Company 3 like to abide by. For me, how I personally see it is I see it almost like Japanese brushwork. You know, it's an art to be able to get the lines in the Japanese, you know, any of that brushwork that you see, it looks very simple when you first look at it, but it takes years and years and years to get that precision. It's one brush stroke, one move. It's an art to get it that way. So I feel that using one node or using a, the most simple amount of color correction possible is very much like practicing that type of brushwork and getting the precision and being very simple. I love that. <laughs> You're right. If that that's one when whenever I I ask the colorists I really admire, I get that's a big theme that recurs is like find a way to do it elegantly with the right ingredients, not 60 things that kind of help. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like I always say you have to have a strong foundation as well. Yeah. So a strong foundation, a strong image foundation and then you build off of that rather than starting from a weak place and then trying to fix too many things that interfere. Mhm. Well that I mean that's Great advice, and and I, that's going to be fresh in my mind when I get into my next grade. Um, I know how busy you are. I know you probably got <laughs> grading to do today. I'm yeah. so glad you could make some time uh, to chat today, and this has been absolutely awesome getting to uh, chat with you uh, in more depth than we've ever really gotten to about color grading. I know this is the most that we've gotten to talk about. I know. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Awesome. See you soon, Jill. All right. See you soon. Thank you.